0: Hello and welcome to the Life Enchanted Podcast. We're on a mission to optimize our lives through faith, health, wisdom, and much more.
1: Thank you for joining us on our journey. Here now is our host, Nick Carlisle.
2: What is good, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to Life Enchanted. My name is Nick Carlisle, and I have the pleasure of being your host as we nerd out on all things faith health interesting and optimizing the goal here is to help you live a better life my friends simple as that and selfishly it helps me as well as i am forced to re-articulate things and teach things to you guys and dive deep into content with guests who have valuable wisdom to share with the world so it is a win-win for both of us praise god for the internet A couple of things before we dive into today's episode. First, hit me up on Instagram at nick.carlisle, that is. I am very active on there and would love to connect with you guys personally. Also, I encourage you to check out my website. That's www.mylifeenchanted.com. On there, you can inquire about my holistic life coaching services. You can check out the Truth Pack, which is a little something that's been tremendously helpful and valuable for me in my morning routine and in my pursuit to optimize my day. You can also check out some shirts and hoodies I designed. There's a free 25-page eating guide on there, a little PDF I developed. I'll put the link to all of that in the show notes below this episode. Lastly, and most importantly, please leave a rating and possibly write a review of Life Enchanted on whatever podcast platform you're using. I'm trying to grow this thing and I need you guys to help me do that. You play an integral part there. So sharing any of my content on Instagram or any of these podcast episodes would be so much appreciated and I will love you forever. But that's enough of the housekeeping items for me. Now let's dive into today's episode. I am pleased to inform you that today's guest
1: is Dr. John Berardi. John is a Canadian American entrepreneur, best known as the co founder of Precision Nutrition, the world's largest nutrition coaching, education, and software company. He's also the founder of Changemaker Academy, devoted to helping would be changemakers turn their passions for health and fitness into a powerful purpose and wildly successful career. He also hosts the Dr. John Berardi Show on Apple
2: Podcasts. Over the last 15 years, he's advised Apple, Equinox, Nike, Titleist, as well as the San Antonio Spurs, Carolina Panthers, U.S. Open champ Sloan Stevens, and two-division UFC champ George St. Pierre. He has also been named one of the 20 smartest coaches in the world and 100 most influential people in
1: health and fitness. He currently lives in Ontario, Canada with his wife and four children, although they tend to escape the cold Canadian winters by spending January to April in warmer places. I myself first came across John's work last year when he was interviewed on one of my favorite podcasts, and then after hearing that episode, I just consumed as much of his content as I possibly could, including his outstanding Change Maker book, which I've read twice actually in the past six months. The dude is just super legit and has a wealth of knowledge in regards to nutrition and performance and business and really just life in general. So I'm stoked for you guys to hear this without further ado, my interview with Dr. John Berardi. All right, John, it is an honor for me to have you here, man. Thank you for doing this. Well, thank you for having me,
0: Nick. I really appreciate it.
1: So I first just want to publicly express my appreciation and gratitude for you, man. I've consumed a lot of your content, and one thing that has consistently stuck out to me is is really just the quality of your character, especially your humility, man. So thank you for that. It's super refreshing to see this in uh, usually the overly dogmatic health and wellness industry. So again, thank you.
0: Well, thanks. I appreciate the kind words. That feels good to
1: hear. Yes, sir. So let's jump right into it because you have a wealth of knowledge and experience that I want to tap in and pull from, and I have a lot of questions here in front of me. So (laughs) let's first talk diet and nutrition. There's a ton of popular one-size-fits-all diets out there, but you take a different approach, and it's one that I really respect. So talk to us about that, man. How do you approach the optimization of one's diet?
0: Sure. Well, you know, I think... We could probably take this question a couple different directions. Mm-hmm. The first is even uh, prying into that word optimization a little bit. You know, it feels natural to come out, um, to use that word, I guess. That's what I mean by come out, but to use that word in this sort of context of moving towards ever betterment. But I think it could be problematic in a lot of cases because it presumes there is like this, you know, holy grail that you can attain in terms of diet. That if you continually nudge towards, you know, another word for optimization is perfect. You Mm -hmm. know, this perfect way of eating uh, that should be the goal. And you know, I've been doing this an exceptionally long time personally. You know, in in other words, you know, trying to eat for good health and good body composition and you know, mental clarity and all these things, but also helping a lot of people. And the notion that we need to be nudging ever better towards optimization, I think it is problematic because in life, as you know, there come various types of seasons. You know, there are the broader swatches of life, you know, where, you know, maybe having children or retiring or starting a career, these are major seasons. But even within those major seasons are these small undulations of life, you know, where things get busier and then they're less busy, uh, sometimes foisted upon us or sometimes by choice. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, give you an example of my life right now. We just wrapped up summer sports season. We have four children. Um, they are on four separate soccer teams and four separate baseball teams <laughs> and I help to coach them. So the entire summer is spent at, you know, 12 to 15, you know, practices and games a week. Mm. So, um, during that kind of busyness on top of a regular life, you know, we homeschool our children. We're, we're busy with, Having four children plus all the extracurriculars, um, you know, maybe this isn't the time for optimization of diet. You know, Mm -hmm. now's the time for, yeah, how do we do good enough? So, that's the first thing I want to talk about or say is just sometimes the goal is just simply, how do I achieve good enough? Yeah, you know, rather than optimal. Um, and for anyone who feels like that's a cop out, like, no, 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 we should always be striving for better. I, I, I really want to walk them down the path of trying to explore why. Like, what is it about that elusive perfection that you're going after? And sometimes when we unpack that, we discover it has nothing to do with diet at all. So, you know, that's the first part. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe for most of us, there is simply figuring out how we can eat so that it's good enough for what we want out of life you know Mm. uh hopefully you're using diet not as an end but as a means to something you know having more energy having more joy you know uh maybe achieving some kind of physical goal so staying really focused on that because as you say dogmatic approaches to eating healthy or whatever the case may be um they are often they they come up when we replace the goal the real goal you know the main thing with diet as the new goal like achieving a perfect diet and it's a subtle shift or slip into that problematic place mm-hmm. you know and that's where we see diet wars online and my diet is better than yours that often is born out of this idea that we have to achieve a perfection of diet when really uh, Eating should be the means to another end, not the end in itself. Mm. So that's a bit of a lofty philosophical kind of take on this whole conversation. So maybe now we can get down into the practical details. Um, you know, and and I think that the practical details are often so fundamentally simple. Mm-hmm. You know, we know from years and years of studies and meta analyses of the studies and you know, looking at humans and how they thrive and how they get sick, that eating foods that are largely unprocessed closer to their natural state more often is better than eating highly processed foods that are further from their natural state. You know, we know this. This isn't ever really debated. Now, if we take it to the extreme, which some people do, and say, All processed foods are evil and all natural foods are good. That's obviously overcorrection, you know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the fundamental simplest tenant is if you are trying to improve your diet either to achieve a goal or to get, quote unquote, good enough, the first step is to, you know, look at the overall quality of your diet using a food record or however you want to do that, taking photos of your meals and objectively ask yourself am i eating more foods that are closer to their natural state and or am i eating more foods that are highly processed mm-hmm. and if it's the latter then you might want to consider nudging in the other direction so now that doesn't you know prescribe any particular type of diet philosophy right it mm-hmm. doesn't mean you have to go vegan or it doesn't matter you have to it doesn't mean you have to go keto or anything like that all of the uh, this advice applies regardless of you know which direction you're inclined to lean mm-hmm. when it comes to diet philosophy. So that's the first thing, you know, more unprocessed or you know lightly processed foods, you know, and think of it as a continuum, right? Because um, there are some foods that you can't eat in their unprocessed state. We can't digest them. We can't chew them. Whatever, right? So sometimes we have to cook them or prepare them in certain ways. But in general, the idea is can I nudge along the continuum towards, you know, less processing in my life and in my diet. Mm-hmm. Then we start to talk about like food selections, right? And we start to think about, well, we know generally fruits and vegetables have proven to be, you know, highly helpful in the pursuit of health and calorie control and you know, all the kinds of things that most people are looking for when they think about improving their diet. So we can begin there, you know, do an audit. How many fruits and vegetables am I getting a day? Do I have a colorful palette of those in my diet? Um, do Do I have a good relationship with fruits and vegetables or do I believe they taste bad and I uh, am not, not going to enjoy them under any circumstances? And that's when sort of the coaching opportunities crop up, right? Mm. Everyone knows that fruits and vegetables are probably good for them, Mm -hmm. Um, yet not everyone gets them, and the question is why, and sometimes it has to do with preferences or taste or those kind of things, and that's when we teach people, hey, well, there are ways to prepare these things that uh, we think you might enjoy, and, you know, based on your own interests and preferences, we could probably slot some in that are really great for you, that you like, rather than that you just have to tolerate. Mm. Um, and then we start thinking about things like protein, right? Um, and do an audit of the protein in your diet. Are, are you getting enough? You know, again, it doesn't have to be all animal protein or no animal protein. There could be some mix uh, of the two. And just thinking about, you know, if you're exercising regularly, thinking about getting about a gram of protein per pound of body weight that you have. Mm. And so those are, those are the big tenants that I think if most people figured out
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, the rest of, you know, that that is the um, coming closer to good enough, yeah. you know, um, less processing, uh, more fruits and vegetables than the average person gets, uh, more protein than the average person gets.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you notice I haven't talked about cutting much out yet because generally when we, do these few things just slip to, towards more unprocessed, towards more fruits and vegetables, towards more protein sources, uh, we tend not to overeat on the other things because these first three moves help to fill us up, help to leave us feeling more satisfied, help to give us more energy, and then we're not being drawn to highly caloric dense foods because we're hungry, our willpower is sapped at the end of the day and we reach more for comfort foods rather than things we know are health promoting. Yes.
1: This is why I wanted to have you on, man. It's so you make it so simple and so easy and so logical that uh it just makes it easy to digest no pun intended. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, I think <clears throat> it's it is straightforward,
0: you know, when it, and uh, I mean, let's face it, what we're doing here is we're talking about ways of living, right? So you think about it. We're just we're two guys sitting here over long distance, talking into microphones, using words to t- try and describe how to go out and act in the world, right? Mm. So, of course, it's easy um, to do that, right? The challenge is the rubber where the rubber meets the road, where you actually have to go out in the context of a real human life and make these kind of decisions under sometimes duress. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, And sometimes under joy, you know what I mean? After a really great accomplishment, sometimes if our lives have been oriented around celebrating with food, that adds its own challenge, right? So it's not just stress that makes us eat in ways that may not be health promoting. It may be joy and accomplishment and all the other things. And that's where coaching becomes so important. And I'm not here to sell coaching. I don't have a coaching business now or anything like that. rather it's just to say that most of the challenges that most people have around food and healthy eating and you know healthy lifestyles is where the rubber meets the road mm-hmm. it's in the context of a real human life do I have the skills and capabilities to make what I already know are better decisions yeah and oftentimes the answer is no a lot of people don't yet have those because they've only read about it but haven't had to practice it. And as we know, when we try and learn almost anything else in life, whether it's to speak a new language or to play a musical instrument or to develop on-the-job skills, usually coaching is the linchpin in all of this. Mm. Having someone who's paying attention to you, who is caring and committed to your success, and who can help you navigate the challenges because they've seen them a million times before? When this is your first time seeing them, mm. that makes the difference, you know. So uh, in my past life, where I did run a coaching company, um, that was the crux of what we were out to do. It was provide people with a real human interaction where they could leverage that intangible. Right? You can read about this stuff all you want. Mm-hmm. But when you're out trying to live it, it's really helpful to have someone in your corner who can help you avoid the um, completely
1: uh, predictable potholes. Yeah, that will appear in the path mm-hmm. in your personal context that you're navigating through. That's exactly right. You know,
0: so when when a lot of diet talk nowadays is around, you know, food prescription and macronutrients and things like that. And to be frank, I, I've gotten a little disillusioned by all of that conversation because mm. it seems to be missing the point. You know, mm. it seems to be totally divorced from the reality of what people are trying to do in the context of their lives. Yeah, right. Um, and most times, the only way, like you, you either have a person doing it on their own who is highly disciplined. A very creative problem solver and has committed a large amount of their mental resources to solving this problem. That kind of person probably has a 60 to 70% chance of being successful here. Mm -hmm. Right. But that's a lot of conditions, you know, that have to be met. Uh, If you're not that person, either you're not highly committed to this project, uh, already a highly flexible thinker. An excellent problem solver, um, then you're going. Your chances of success are very low without someone who can help you navigate that. Mm. So that's what I think is so critical for those listening. If this is a project you're interested in taking on, this idea of improvement, like getting to good enough with your food or exercise or whatever, um, the the best advice I have around nutrition is not about food. It's about finding someone who can say, "Oh, hey." Uh, I know this is a long weekend coming up. Uh, There's going to be some challenges that come up that you might not foresee. Here's how you can sidestep those before they even happen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's good news for me because I just got qualified to be a, a health coach, and I'm going through more certifications, and I'm going nice. to start launching my business. So I, I love to hear that and hear you explain just the practicality of it and the, and the real life application of it because I think that people don't they're like health coaching. What like is that a gimmick? Like what what is that? Right. You know, but it is highly applicable, and I know that, that Chris Kresser talks a lot about it, and I, I've heard a lot of people just talk about the future of, of health and wellness. Are these health yeah. coaches? Partnering with medical doctors who don't have time to check in with you um, during the week or during the month—you see these doctors once a year—and they they're helpful in that you know 11-minute session usually, and they can give you some tips, but they can't they can't walk you through that that personal context of your life, and that's where the health and wellness coaches can come in and really. Help you and do what you call the awesome ba- awesomeness-based client-centered mm-hmm. coaching to really help people make long-lasting changes instead of just dumping a gangload of you know information and expecting people to follow through on it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's right. You know, I mean, uh, learning is great.
1: I, I mean, I have a
0: PhD. I, I've committed to lifelong learning, but it's fundamentally a you know a thinking brain frontal cortex-oriented activity, whereas what we're talking about here are the lower brain centers, the centers that govern habit and routine and emotional responses to, uh, you know, uh, events in life. And those are the ones that need the practice and the work, right? And that, they're difficult to uh, regulate, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, If it was easy not to yell at your children, right, if just simply read a book and then you stop yelling at your children... Uh, we'd have a lot less yelling at our children in the world, you know? <laughs> uh, people know it's probably not the best. People can read a book t- with all the reasons why and outlining the strategies uh, to not do it. Yet, when they're in highly emotional situations where either their values are compromised or pushed against, they're feeling highly emotional and their epinephrine and norepinephrine or fight-or-flight hormones, they're supercharged, it mm-hmm. becomes very difficult not to yell, and that is something that needs a different approach than learning, right? Yes. So, and to, to your point about health coaching, yeah, I mean the industry is really changing in that way. I know, for example, Precision Nutrition, the company that I started and sold about four years ago, um, is uh, on track to do the same to be a you know a health coach certification provider, which. Is interesting, you know. I know Chris Cresser, who you mentioned, has one also, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting because not only will they health coaches be able to partner with physicians, but they will have insurance billing codes. So, for example, uh, very much like if you have to go to physical therapy for an injury on the job and you have health insurance. Uh, if you have health insurance, you'll be able to have a health coach eventually. So that's uh, your insurance company will pay for it rather than having to come out of pocket. And I think that is a difference maker, mm-hmm. right? Then it's open to a wide group of people, not just the people who are wealthy enough to afford it or who have squirreled away all of their extra earnings just because this is important to them.
1: Yeah, and from what I understand, you need to be you need to go through a program that is that makes you qualified to sit for the National Board of Health and Wellness Coaching or something. I think that's the the name. And then once you pass that exam, you can start accepting those those insurance codes. Is that accurate?
0: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the climate's changing quite quickly. So, you know, in one or two years, this the answer may be different. Yeah. But Right now, yes, that's 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 where it is, and and it is a bit of a cold rush, right? Because it, this hasn't been a thing that's existed before, mm-hmm. and so uh, people in the health and fitness space are obviously passionate about the work that they do, sometimes to a fault, and um, so they are really lobbying hard for this to be a, a thing. You mm-hmm. know, one of the first times in history where you know an insurance provider could cover the kinds of services that someone who talks about food and exercise um, and nutritional supplementation and sleep and stress management could have their services covered you know Um, and it's not bonus you know it's not
2: extra for people who have extra cash quick pause friends this episode is brought to you by the good people at viore clothing I'm obsessed with this brand. I work out in it. I wear it to work.
1: I wear it to church. I wear it on dinner dates with my wife. I paddleboard in it. They just make really
2: durable and versatile and comfortable clothing, and I need that in my life. Their goal was to build men's and women's active wear that didn't look like active wear, and they did that quite
1: well, if I do say so myself. My two personal favorite pieces of theirs are their core shorts and then their Tuvalu tee, which are both so sick and fit super well, and my wife loves their performance joggers and all of their women's workout tanks. Overall, Viore is an investment in your happiness. And for listeners of Life Enchanted, they are offering 20% off your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at Viori.com slash enchanted. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash enchanted. Not only will you receive twenty percent off your first purchase, but enjoy free shipping on any US orders over seventy five dollars and free returns. Just go to viori slash enchanted and discover the versatility of viori clothing. Let's go to um, a couple more practical tips in regard to diet and nutrition. I love how you talk about mindful eating and then satisfied, not stuffed those Mm. two different concepts. Can you just quickly touch on those two for us? Yeah, I mean, this, you know, uh,
0: so for those listeners who don't know, you know, I I started this company, Precision Nutrition, many moons ago. And, you know, we created what was probably the first online group uh, nutrition lifestyle coaching program. Uh, This was in the early 2000s. Nowadays, you you know, they're ubiquitous, but back then ours was kind of the first. And, uh, you know, we were leveraging technology so we could reach people around the world, uh, to help them move forward in their health behaviors, in their nutrition behaviors, in their sleep and stress management behaviors. And so we created a curriculum, a one-year curriculum to take people through this idea, you know, to help them achieve mastery in that timeframe. frame. And I bring all that up as a backstory to say this. You know, we could have created any program we wanted. We could have put in any practices and habits that we wanted. And the practices that we chose to put in first, the first thing we ask people to do um, is to work on this idea of, you know, mindful eating and, I I, I almost hear hesitation in my voice when I use the word mindful because I think it's become co-opted and a bit cliche nowadays. Mm -hmm. Um, But the idea is simply if you're not paying attention to a thing in your life, then it's very difficult to change it. you Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Uh, You have to be looking and listening and paying attention. So the idea is we can't tell people to start eating better until they start paying attention to how they're eating now. Uh, And not just what they're eating, although that's part of it. It's also who are you eating with? What times of the day are you eating? Are you eating after certain things, before other things? Let's pay close attention to that for a couple of weeks, right? So the first practice is that very thing, sort of paying attention to your eating. And so we have a couple practices. We created a couple practices in a row designed for this very thing. You know, one was around... um, So eating until satisfied instead of stuffed, right? Mm -hmm. Another was to slow down your eating, right? So the idea here, and and these practices are so interesting because they sound so beginner, you Mm -hmm. know, but they're the most challenging practices people have. I mean, if I tell you to eat a palm-sized portion of protein three or four times a day, well, that's quantifiable, it's measurable, it's easy, you know, whether you did it or not. Um, If you didn't do it, you can think of the reason why. But these other things are a little more nebulous, but they're so critical, right? The idea is if I ask you to slow down your eating, right? So how long does a meal normally take you? Five, six minutes? Can we stretch that out to eight or 10 minutes? Um, The point is of that, that now you're slowing down and paying attention, right? Uh, Some guidance around that may be to eliminate distractions during your meal. So Maybe for a couple meals a week, no TV or no being on your phone or the internet. Um, and just be present with the experience that you're having of eating. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we ch- tell you to change any food selections or anything like that, just slow down your meal. The, the side benefit of that, in addition to the mindfulness aspect, is that generally when we eat slower, we eat less. Uh, it takes a certain amount of time for our gut to tell our brain we're full and to stop eating. And if we power through a meal quickly, then it takes longer for that message to get there. And I don't know about you, but if I were to try and cram you know, 2,000 calories in a meal down in five minutes, I could do it mm-hmm. because um, my brain hasn't yet got that satiation feeling because i just eaten so quickly. Mm. So if we slow it down, eventually you go, hey, I've had enough. I feel satisfied. So that's part of this mindfulness thing. And then once someone is slowing down with their meal and they can start to listen to their internal hunger appetite satiation cues then we can start to work on things like eating till satisfied instead of stuffed which is the next practice so you see we're trying to sort of build this in a sequential order where the first thing builds the skill to do the next thing Mm. so once you've slowed down your meals and, and this doesn't mean eat slow for every meal for the rest of your life that's impractical But if you work on that for the first two weeks and you start tuning into your hunger cues and your appetite and your satisfaction signals, and then you start thinking about, okay, what does satisfied feel like? What does stuffed feel like? What does unsatisfied feel like? Okay, now, oh, about this amount of food generally keeps me feeling satisfied. Okay, that's great. I'm going to stop here. Then you can start to think about, okay, then how much protein should that be? How much carb should that be? Fruits and vegetables. So that's really where we like to begin. And again, these are concrete things you can do, actions you can take. Um, And we have, you know, we had worksheets and things like that that you could fill out or on your phone or in pen and paper where you start to write down, like almost like personal journaling to get a a sense for these things. Mm. So that again, you build this fundamental skill. And this skill is really interesting because you can use it for any goals eventually, right? Mm -hmm. If it's sort of weight maintenance, then you're going to try and just eat till you're satisfied with each meal. If you want to lose weight, you might try and stop just short of satisfied. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to gain weight, you have to eat a little quicker to get more calories in and maybe even eat till stuffed. So- Understanding what satisfied stuff, unsatisfied is, is so critical regardless of your goal.
1: Yes. So good, man. Let's transition over to some more complex uh, eating ideas. I want to talk about intermittent fasting. I know you've you've done quite a bit of research and you wrote a wonderful article on um, intermittent fasting. But Talk to us about just your current thoughts today about time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting
0: hmm yeah i mean i um I really feel like it's a strategy for people who've gone through these fundamental steps of understanding their appetite, understanding their you know hows and whys of eating uh if you're just beginning um my old business partner, Phil Caravaggio, who started precision nutrition with me uh my favorite line of his was a uh, uh, a couple of years after I started playing around with intermittent fasting, he tried it, got in really great shape on it, uh, and then stopped and went right back to how he was before, which wasn't out of shape. But, mm-hmm. um, and his comment was, uh, intermittent fasting is easy come, easy go. You know, <laughs> In other words, when you do it, it creates artificial rules about how much you can eat and when, and that forces you to eat less. But the minute you want to eat breakfast again or dinner again, depending on what meal you were skipping, the weight comes right back on because the rules are lifted. And it's not like you're being bad or anything. It's just simply uh, when these artificial constraints are removed, it's much easier to take in extra calories, and then you gain the weight right back. And if you are at the beginning of a health or nutrition journey, um. This isn't what you want. I mean, it's going to teach you all the wrong lessons. You will develop superstitions about what works and what doesn't. What I really prefer people to do is to do some of the things we talked about earlier. Start with moving towards fewer processed foods. Get their fruit and vegetable intake online. You know, get their protein in check. And then start thinking about, okay, cool, how much exercise am I doing? How much is my general intake intake? If I'm not losing weight, if that's my goal, how can I dial back my calories just a little bit, you know, and learning these things about yourself and about your choices and preferences before you do things like, well, I'm just going to eliminate an entire food group, Mm -hmm. which occurs when people decide to go vegan or decide to go keto or decide to go carnivore or something like that. That is an artificial constraint that removes an entire food category, which fundamentally, You know, forces you to eat less. And intermittent fasting just does it by eliminating a whole meal of the day Mm -hmm. or two meals of the day or whatever. Right. So, this isn't me saying anything's wrong with any of these approaches. Uh, People who know me know I'm very agnostic about this. But what tends to happen is if you're at the beginning of your journey, you follow the rules of one of these more strict types of approaches, you develop superstitions which are these beliefs in the power of a particular thing. Like if you go keto, your superstition is that carbs are responsible for weight gain. Mm. And without carbs, you can stay lean. Well, there are millions of people on the planet, billions, who can demonstrate to you with real evidence that they eat carbs and they aren't overweight or obese. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, So... Likewise, you know, if you decide to go vegan because, um, and and it helps you, right, then you can develop the superstition that, you know, animal foods, animal proteins, whatever, are disease causing and weight causing and all this. Contrary to the evidence, you know, there are lots of people who are not vegan, who can achieve good health, who, you know, aren't, you know, proof of the superstition that you possess and the same with intermittent fasting you know um, you develop these superstitions around breakfast not being good for you or you know if I go for long periods of fasting it does some kind of physiological magic that you know no one else has the secret to <laughs> so you know I I'm always very cautious with some of these things and I say you have to you can't you can't jump the queue, Mm -hmm. you know, which in other words, you can't get ahead of your, um, your nutritional level. Uh, and it's so difficult to understand because you're like, if you try intermittent fasting, so let's say you decide, Hey, I'm just going to stop eating in the mornings and I'll have my first meal around one o'clock and I'll have my last meal around eight o'clock and I'll have two meals and I'll do my exercise and stuff. You will lose weight. You, you will have most likely a short-term positive outcome. The problem is for the rest of your life, that will be the only way you think you can get in shape. And that is not practical for the rest of your life. You need a wide variety of tools mm. to be able to be healthy and fit. And having lots of options in almost every context of life, is better than having no or only one option. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, it it reminds me a lot of what happens with a lot of young men, for example, who when they're in in their teenage years or early twenties, they have lots of disposable time and they spend a good chunk of it at the gym, right? So maybe they're weight training for you know four or five sessions a week and they go for a run and. Uh, So they're putting a lot of exercise time in and they're in the best shape of their lives. And then they get to their 30s and 40s and maybe they have children and they have a career that they're focusing on. And they can't see a path to fitness because all they have is one tool. Mm -hmm. Work out five days a week and go for a run four mornings a week. That's the only tool they have. And if that tool doesn't fit into their lives because they don't have the time for it, then they believe there is no approach that can help them mm. when I know there are dozens of tools they can use in this kind of circumstance. Mm-hmm. Both having coached lots of people and having done it myself. You know, I have four children and a busy life and you know, and, and a jacked. very big company. <laughs> yeah, and I'm in good shape. <laughs> like I I know how to do this and and I know how to do it with maybe two hours of exercise a week, mm. if that's the season of life that only allows for those two hours so back to the food thing you know again intermittent fasting fairly straightforward if you get your protein and your vegetables and you and and your high quality unprocessed foods and you do it in two meals versus three a day it's fine it works for a lot of people Mm -hmm. the problem is i hate when beginners start with it because then they believe that's the only way to do it and uh not only does that approach uh approach lead to sort of an annoying kind of dogmatism, right? Like a philosophical belief that intermittent fasting is the only sensible way to eat for humans. Even more so, and this is the more tragic outcome, is that they don't understand there's another way to be healthy and fit and in shape and maintain a low body weight or, you know, lean body with abs. Uh, And that's the real tragedy, right? Because Mm -hmm. they have no flexibility now. They have no other tools. Uh, So it's like, they're at a point in their life where maybe intermittent fasting doesn't fit in, and they're like, "I'll just wait until my life clears up so I can start fasting again." Mm. Right? So you're putting your happiness and your progress and your health into some future future state, right? Yeah. Uh, rather than being able to take steps towards it now, so that's my only caveat with it. Mm-hmm. Like I said, you know, if you want to try a vegan approach or an intermittent fasting approach or a ketogenic diet approach these are all fine things. I just like people to have a little more self-knowledge before they experiment with these things. You know, it it really is for more advanced and even advanced is a loaded term. Like no one wants to feel like a beginner,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: you know? So maybe a better word is for people who are a little further along in the journey who have a little more self-knowledge and have experimented and built up a good foundation of of the basics first. Mm.
1: So it's it's kind of like this idea of building up your own personal tool bag that works well with you and inter- intermittent fasting can just be one of the tools inside of that bag instead of the whole bag itself. Mhm. Yeah, exactly. That's that's it. You know, I mean, uh
0: for example, I've you know, I'm 47 now. I started playing around in the weight room when I was 16. So it's 31 years now. Um I I was very skinny and scrawny, so I didn't have the problem where I was always looking to lose weight. You know, for me, it was I wanted to build strength and muscle and things like that. By the time I was 18 or 19, I had built a pretty respectable physique. So, you know, I started playing around with intermittent fasting in probably 2009, Mm. right? And so uh, I was, you know, 18 years old in 1992, So I had lived from 1992 to 2009 with a pretty good body, Mm -hmm, (laughs) you know. mm -hmm. I was able to do a lot of things. That was eating a great diet. That was exercising regularly without ever having tried or even heard of intermittent fasting as a health promotion tool. Um, So it, you know, uh, not to say everyone has to follow my exact path here, But it's evidence that it's possible. You know, Uh, no, no one really starting messing with intermittent fasting in the health and fitness world until the mid to late Mm -hmm. two thousands. I'd say probably late two thousands because when I wrote that intermittent fasting book, um, that was you know two thousand nine, two thousand ten, and and really in health and fitness, no one. No one was talking about it or believed in it as a tool. So we're, we're talking about it being like 11 years old. Wow. Uh, there's been people who've been in shape and <laughs> done great by their bodies uh, for a lot longer than the last 11 years. So intermittent fasting is just, you know, if uh, no one likes their tool of choice to be called a fad, mm-hmm. but it is. I, I mean, th- that doesn't mean it's bad, Yeah. but yeah. it it is a fad. It's a trend. It's a thing that people are talking about now and elevating above everything else uh be- for whatever reason because it's interesting because there's nothing else to write about right now for whatever host of reasons right mm-hmm. um and its popularity will wane at a certain point and it'll come back again later as most trends or fads do um and so yeah i think these things just need to be put into their appropriate historical and personal context.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't the idea though of when you're fasting, this whole idea of metabolic flexibility that most of us are insulin resistant and that when we fast, we train our body to quote, dine in, to start being able to use our body fat as fuel, which it typically can't because when insulin is present in the blood, we're in storage mode. So we can't ever dip into our fat stores. So this idea Mm -hmm. of fasting is requiring our body to say hey insulin is down now we're not in storage mode we can dip into the fat stores on our body and use that up as fuel therefore making us more metabolically fit and more insulin sensitive which helps our metabolic rate and helps us kind of burn fuel more efficiently in the future that seems to make sense to me yeah
0: totally i mean it it does i mean and it's a nice argument and and to summarize it for listeners again the idea is you know, if you go long stretches over the course of a day without eating, uh, during those hours, your body needs energy from somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. So um, in the beginning, when you start fasting, it kind of feels terrible during that time because your body's not used to tapping into the stored energy, right? It's used to just eating whatever you had in your last meal for energy, right? Um but now, with fasting, maybe we train our bodies to eat the food that we already have on us, mm-hmm. right? And uh, for some people who maybe have pathology and they are unable due to insensitivity or elevation of certain hormones, um, tap into the food that's on them, this may, over time, help their bodies retrain, right? So it's a, it's a nice theoretical argument. Yeah. The, pro- the problem, though, is... Who all does it actually apply to, right? I mean, I have, you know, I've worked with elite athletes for a long time. I've worked with endurance athletes. You know, go out to a group of middling to high level endurance runners and watch what they eat, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, (laughs) they they eat enough carbs to make uh, an intermittent faster or keto advocate's head explode. (laughs) Yeah, and they are leaner. You know, than uh, than any one of them, right? Totally. So we have to start looking for evidence in the world rather than just strong theoretical arguments, mm. right? Mm. I mean, it's it's when you hear people talk about how bad meat is for you, um, and uh, they they have a strong vegan or or plant based position, and they they fundamentally believe you can't be healthy while eating products that come from animals. Mm-hmm. And it just tells me that if they believe that they haven't looked for evidence in the world, you know, it's the same thing with, you know, people who believe carbs are evil rather than animal foods. They haven't looked for evidence in the world. You know, there there are entire countries whose Diet is 70% carbohydrate, and they don't have the problems these people say carbohydrates cause. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about billions of people. So if you have a very small sample size of the world, it's very easy to draw false conclusions and superstitions uh, about everything. I mean, we you know, we're living in a pandemic right now, and we see it about how people react to vaccines or not vaccines, about the coronavirus and not the coronavirus. Um, when your world is small, you have a small sample size, it's easy to draw conclusions and then to have an N of five, you know, for science people, that means Mm -hmm. the number of subjects in your little study is five and, and come to very false conclusions. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, you have to expand your view of the world and look for more sample, you Mm -hmm. know, and then you can actually become more confident. Uh, And the reality is uh, larger sample sizes usually blow away a lot of our uh, preconceived notions Mm -hmm. about how things really are. So yeah, with with intermittent fasting, where we started here, the idea is that it can help retrain metabolic flexibility in people who have clinical pathologies, right? If you are a type 2 diabetic, if you have insulin insensitivity, uh, intermittent fasting may be a productive way to help... Retrain uh, or retune your hormonal profile to deal with periods of fasting, um, but um, how you know if you're not that person, then this may not be at all applicable or useful to you. Yeah. Um, and again, all we have to do is look to people who don't fast and are lead mm-hmm. and say, wait, if 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 fasting is the only way to achieve metabolic flexibility. How are those people not obese? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay, maybe there's other ways. And the way we know is much more powerful than even fasting is exercise. Mm -hmm. Intense, varied, some mix of high-intensity, low-intensity strength training um, is probably more powerful on every dimension. So the big selling points for intermittent fasting are this idea of metabolic flexibility, And this idea of uh, hormesis, right, or or small amounts of stress over time that build more resilient cells. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, a lot of the literature suggests exercise is better for both. Mm. And the question just becomes, if we're because most people are going to do intermittent fasting um, are also already exercising, so they're already doing both things. The question is, are they additive? So in other words, if I get a little hormesis from exercise and a, a little bit of you know hormonal benefit, metabolic flexibility from exercise, and then I try and get it from intermittent fasting, is one plus one equal two? Mm. Or are they, they giving us the same max benefit? Like exercise taps it out. It brings you to the ceiling. So intermittent fasting doesn't offer any additional benefit over exercise, except for it controls calories. Mm-hmm. In other words, I'm going to eat less when I'm fasting. And it's the calorie control that causes the weight loss and not the magical hormonal things that you're not measuring. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of open questions on a lot of this, but most of the smartest, most balanced thinkers I know uh, really believe that the powerful benefits of intermittent fasting are simply, they constrain your eating window so that you simply eat less over the course of a day. Yeah, And that's the thing that science has repeatedly proven. If you eat a little bit less than you burn over the course of a day, you will ultimately lose body fat and body weight. That's, mm. that's the not-so-secret secret.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So not that this will be a prescription for everyone, but Walk us through a typical day of eating right now for John Berardi on an average Tuesday or whatever it is.
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, happy to. And and I should probably set the context here. You know, I I am as I said someone who's been exercising for 31 years. I have a good deal of muscle mass, a lot more than my age-matched peers. Um I also right now currently am wanting to gain a little bit of muscle mass. I uh have a friend who recently convinced me that, you know, I'm not getting any younger, <laughs> and uh, and that you know there is an inevitable muscle mass decline as we age, mm-hmm. and it'd be better to start with a little more muscle mass than a little less <laughs> if you're going to lose some progressively every decade. Makes sense. Um, yeah, and uh, and so I'm I'm trying to gain a, a few pounds, maybe five or eight pounds of lean mass over the next year or so. So this and is you're what 47, I- right? Yes, that's right. So this, so my eating is in that context. I'm in better shape than most of the people that listeners will know. Mm-hmm. I've been doing this for 31 years, and I'm trying to gain a little weight rather than lose some
1: weight.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, also, I know my body really well. I know what foods I respond to well, and I know what foods I don't respond to well. I also have an autoimmune disease, uh, psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. So some of my decisions are around mitigating symptoms mm. uh, of that. So anyway... You know, uh, we are talking in the morning, so I just had my first meal. That is typically uh, a couple slices of chicken bacon, um, some egg whites and one whole egg, a uh, small bowl of uh, steel-cut oats with usually frozen berries and some raw mixed nuts. And with that, I usually have a uh, scoop of collagen protein in water and uh uh, greens powder Hmm. so that's my first meal of
1: the day um and when do you usually eat that like how early
0: uh i sleep in uh Mm. contrary to how most people expect my life to be (laughs) i usually sleep as long as i can in the morning i have always had a high requirement for sleep i usually you know if i can if i can swing it get about nine hours a night Mm. uh so i usually wake up around nine or nine thirty and then then eat this right away got you um And I'll usually, you know, help cook breakfast for the kids, make my breakfast at the same time, and then we'll all kind of eat together. Um, For those who are like, how do you do that with a job? Well, you know, I've worked from home for almost my entire career, so I can make my own schedule. If your schedule's different, then you might have to adjust. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then usually um, that breakfast fills me up for quite a long period of time. So I usually then wait till about two o'clock, have a strength training or interval workout. Uh, I do four to five strength training sessions a week, usually probably four, and then usually two interval workouts a week. I have uh, an assault bike, which is mm. you know a, a bike where you pedal and the arms go too, right? It's Death. Challenging. Yeah, so <laughs> I usually do uh, sprints, either 10 seconds on, 20 seconds rest uh, for repeated intervals, or... Thirty seconds on, thirty seconds off for repeated intervals. So mm. those are generally my workouts. So I'll do a workout, mm. then uh, during that workout I'll usually sip an essential amino acid drink with some creatine. Mm. Uh, and then when I come in from that, I'll have another scoop of collagen protein with greens powder. Uh, and then maybe an hour later, I'll have a meal, which is typically three quarters of a pound of protein. So that could be, you know, extra lean ground beef it could be you know tenderloin beef tenderloin it could be chicken it could be sausage whatever uh and a a side of vegetables which could be asparagus or you know green beans and then a huge salad Mm. like one of those big serving bowls that people usually put out for the table Uh, i'll have that for just me i love (laughs) i call it my big ass salad i love my salad um and then uh, – so so maybe I'm eating that around 3 o'clock or so. Uh, then I will wait till uh, after we put the kids to bed. And I will typically have – I usually take the dog for about a half an hour walk uh, after the kids go to bed. Uh, and then I get some extra steps myself. And then I will come in and have my last meal of the day, which looks a lot like meal number uh, two there, mm. big a you know, three quarters portion of protein, pound portion of protein, uh, vegetables on the side, and maybe another big salad. Uh, then if it was a strength training day that day, I'll often have dessert, which uh, is usually some dairy-free ice cream with some mixed nuts, a banana, some dark chocolate, maybe some almond butter mixed in. Mm. Uh, and then that's then that's typically my eating for the day. It usually comes to close to about 3,000 calories a day, which would be a lot for a lot of mm-hmm. folks. But again, my activity level's high, my body mass is high enough, um, and I'm lean, so I, I can get away with all those calories. But, it, I mean, if you if you uh, squint your eyes and, and just look at the big picture, I have three food meals a day. Mm-hmm. I have dessert after one of them. And then I have... Uh, Two shakes around exercise times, mm. um, so it's it's not really that complicated. If you think about the composition, right? It's a lot of fruits and vegetables, uh, primarily vegetables. A lot of uh, lean to moderate fat protein sources, and uh, then I have you know some conventional grains carbs in the form of my oats in the morning. Um, and sometimes after my workouts, it comes from dairy-free ice cream or and, and whatever else is in that bowl. Uh, I call it my recovery bowl. Um, <laughs> people probably have questions about the protein. I use collagen protein primarily because I uh, both am lactose intolerant and have a milk protein allergy, so I can't use things like whey protein. Most vegan proteins, uh, I, I just don't stomach very well. Mm-hmm. Collagen protein is great. I have no negative body reactions to it plus it helps with my autoimmune condition or it may help with my autoimmune condition there's some data that it helps with skin and -hmm. joints which is exactly what my autoimmune condition affects Mm. so i like using collagen for that reason it gives me some extra amino acids um and it uh it may help with some of my other stuff
1: Mm. thank you for that my mouth is watering A lot. (laughs)
0: Um, Yeah, I love I love this way of eating. Now, people who maybe are into intermittent fasting, what we've talked a lot about. um, You know, I I have done intermittent fasting. Probably, I'd say over the last, let's say since 2009. So let's say 12, 13 years. I've probably done intermittent fasting for about six of them, hmm. and six years not. And and how do I make that decision? Honestly, it kind of has to do with my mood and my goals. Uh, During a portion of that time, I was actually trying to lose weight because I was competing in master's level track and field. And so I would do intermittent fasting to keep my body weight low enough so that I could uh, be lean and light for sprinting. Mm. Um, But when I'm not trying to stay lean and light, intermittent fasting doesn't help me accomplish my goals like uh, i don't carry the amount of body weight and muscle mass that i want uh it's very difficult for me to get three thousand calories of varied food uh intake from two meals a day yeah you know yeah um and also you know i the one thing you notice if you've done a lot of intermittent fasting you know i the thing that's always been intriguing to me is that the biggest proponents are rarely people with busy lives and multiple children. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. they're generally people who um, don't have those conditions in place. In other words, their stress load, whatever it feels to them, may be lower than uh, some other people. Uh, intermittent fasting is a bit of a stressor mm-hmm. you know. as you go longer periods without eating your body has to release stress hormones to eat the fat that's on your body we talked about that you know and um so there are times in my life where intermittent fasting i just i just can't do it adds too much stress uh and i feel my recovery being less i feel my immune system being less tolerant and also just my mood is worse You know, and with four young children, I don't want to be short and impatient and moody with them. So some of the decision has to do around that. You know, I I don't want to add another stressor that makes me a meaner guy than I ought to be. Yeah. Um, because these things do affect your mood. You know, talk to anyone, you know, who is objective about their use of a low carbohydrate diet. There are periods of that diet where you are not your nicest self. You know, you're not your most mentally focused and kindest and patientest self. Mm-hmm. And the same is true with intermittent fasting. Um, I used to keep a logbook of everything that I was thinking and feeling when I tried new experiments with diet. And the thing with intermittent fasting was I was amazingly focused if I was doing a certain kind of work uh, uninterrupted mm-hmm. uh, w- without requiring social engagement uh work. Uh however, that was a nightmare if it required social interaction and patience and high level communication uh while fasted. So there's some stuff to know about how these things affect your brain. I mean, and it's not complicated, right? Mm-hmm. Uh the thing that allows you to tap into your food on your body, the stored food rather than the eaten food from your meal, is cortisol. Epinephrine and norepinephrine. These are your fight or flight hormones, right? Mm-hmm. They go up during an extended fast. Uh, if you're intentionally putting yourself into low grade fight or flight mode, mm-hmm. right? So imagine when you're stressed, you know, the proverbial being chased by a lion, you know, uh, that's not the best parenting moment. You know, right. that's not the best, <laughs> uh, you know, managing your team moment. You know, that's not when you're going to be your best, most patient self. That's going to be when you're highly reactive. Mm. So, you know, I don't want to disasterize this because there's no need for that. But at the same time, we just have to think physiology is fairly straightforward. You know, you are going in fight or flight mode when you do extended fast. What activities do you want to be doing and what do you want to be avoiding when you're in fight or flight mode?
1: That's well, then maybe maybe point. you need
0: to rearrange your day around those if you're going to make this choice.
1: Yeah, I've never heard it said like that, and that is such a good point. I've I'm I've been intermittent fasting since about 2016, and it immediately helped me a ton. I dropped about 25 pounds, and just it was fairly easy for me to integrate to my personal lifestyle, and it's helped mm-hmm. me a ton. But I I do see that my mental state swings a lot more mm-hmm. when I'm fasting. Um, and you just brought up so many good points that are really, really making me think. And, uh, well, you know, you yeah.
0: think if I, I don't know if you have the same experience that a lot of people do, which is as you come to the end of a, say, a 16 hour fast, for example, certainly a 24 hour fast. Yeah. I mean, your brain becomes highly interested in food mm-hmm. for some number of hours leading up to that. It might be one, it might be two hours, right? And you learn to live with it. But if you're really objective and self-aware, you realize you spend an inordinate amount of day being excited about when your next meal is going to come, you know? And that's just biology, you know? Uh, You're getting to the end of your, you know, your fast, your tolerance for fasting. Um, There's uh, neurotransmitters and hormones that are released in anticipation of that meal, Uh, ghrelin is the most discussed one, Mm -hmm. uh, that is an anticipatory hormone that, you know, when you eat on a routine, it's released, I don't know, about an hour before half an hour before your regular mealtime. And that's the thing that makes you start feeling really hungry before your typical mealtime. You know, um, it can be retrained, but it's, you know, some of these signals get pretty powerful, with Mm. uh, intermittent fasting so uh, that was the thing i liked the least Mm -hmm. you know if i was fasting till one o'clock around 11 or 12 i would start getting tunnel vision and thinking about what meal i'm gonna have and my patience would be short and i would feel that Low-level anxiety for that upcoming meal, and it was such a tremendous relief when you ate it. You felt so good when you ate it, and typically because you've been fasting, you eat a bigger one. Yeah, so you feel you you really get this positive reinforcement, right? And I think this is, you know, this is the uh, hormonal trickery that leads people to believe that this is such an unqualified good eating mm. this way, because mm. you know. Part of the day is spent in this amped up state, you know, and and so when people do keto or intermittent fasting, they talk about how much energy they feel sometimes. Yeah, right. And a lot of times it is fight or flight energy. Epinephrine and norepinephrine are powerful stimulants, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what they feel. But this isn't. I don't know. We'll call- this sounds judgmental, but good clean energy, right? Yeah, yeah. This is fight or flight energy. This is body survival energy. If this energy keeps up, you will crash and have no energy. You know. Mm. So these are the kind of things we want to be really cautious and conscious about uh, when we're making lifestyle choices. Or and not so we don't use fasting or keto or whatever. It's so that we understand what's really happening. We don't develop superstitions that aren't true. And then we can use the pros and cons to our advantage, right? If you feel a certain way when you're on extended fast, and let's say that's the morning, then maybe you can schedule certain activities during that time and avoid other activities that are unlikely to be productive. Mm -hmm. Maybe you have supportive work team or a flexible schedule or supportive spouse, partner, family life that will allow for that. And if so, then engineer your day Mm -hmm. um, and know what's happening, know why it's happening, And then use that advantage. You know, you don't want to be parenting in fight or flight. Yeah. But it's a great time to work out.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a great time to do a podcast interview sometimes, like I'm you know, like, because the mental clarity is there. But something I wanted to ask you earlier that, that I didn't just for time's sake, but what, my least favorite thing about intermittent fasting is the crash that inevitably comes when I break my fast and right. how much of a different person I am after I have that 12 o'clock, one o'clock right, meal. Right, right. So
0: you mean you sort of have an energy
1: lull and you feel a bit sleepy. Yeah, but it makes sense because also a lot of people will use black coffee or, you know sympathetic nervous activity nervous system yeah. activity in a cup fight or flight in a cup to to suppress their appetite which makes the intermittent fasting easier but you're drinking the caffeine you're fasting you're putting these stressors these fight or flight, you know activities into your body and then all of a sudden you break your fast with this meal which is a parasympathetic activity and it just crashes you right down so I was going to ask you how what your thoughts were about that but man it it makes so much sense that maybe my issue isn't how I'm breaking my fast or the timing that I'm breaking my fast maybe it's I need to start having breakfast (laughs) (laughs) well this is this is the thing you know without sounding too much like a
0: therapist you know the therapy kind of questions come up here, like, yeah, uh, what what would it be like, you know, if you didn't have to run your life in this way what What would it be like if you you know ate a small breakfast? like you don't have to go for the all you can eat pancakes and bacon breakfast uh-huh. uh, eat something small during this quote unquote fasting time, you know um, and then your noontime meal was a bit smaller still, you know, what would be the worst thing that would happen if you tried it a couple days? You know what I mean? Asking questions and probing reality, you know, I mean, uh, stoic philosophy has been popular lately. And uh, part of the crux of that is this idea of thinking about the worst case scenarios like Mm. how you might interact with or react to the worst case scenarios in your life. Um, This is a great example to practice something like that. You know, you talked about earlier before recording about cold plunges and things like that. Uh, Oftentimes, a lot of the benefit of cold plunges, for example, is the mental, Mm -hmm. you know, not necessarily the physiological, you know, cold shock proteins and all these things. It's, you know, can I use this to train myself to not disasterize normal body feelings, Mm -hmm. right? This is an exercise we do a lot with our children. Um, And it's, it's one that I get a lot of great pride in when I see them Behaving this way, so for example, a lot of things in life, like cold showers, or let's say getting a needle at the doctor's office, you know, or having a friend disappoint you, right? Mm-hmm. All that, all that's happening is your body is having a reaction to it, right? Cold. What happens when you dunk yourself in cold? Mm-hmm. Well, you you tend to clench your muscles, your heart rate elevates, you feel this particular sensation on your skin. If you interpret that as bad then you allow yourself to freak out. But if you just convince yourself this is what cold feels like, right? Uh, Warm feels a certain way, cold feels a certain way. You know, Drinking a warm beverage feels a certain way. Drinking a cold beverage feels a certain way. This is what cold feels like, then you cannot disasterize it. This is the number one thing that intermittent fasting taught me. This is what hunger feels like. It doesn't have to be an emergency. Mm. I don't have to rush to food. When you feel hunger, it doesn't mean I must eat and I have to freak out and get hangry until I eat. Yeah, It's just, oh, this is what hunger feels like. Interesting. And the more you train yourself on it, the more you get comfortable with that feeling, and now it's not a disaster. So nowadays, um, our oldest, who's 11, will have these mini circumstances in life that she might have historically treated as bad or stressful, and then she'll just say, oh dad yeah I did this thing today and at first I was freaking out a little bit about it and then I just remembered oh this is what X the thing that you just did feels like and then I was okay mm. and I was like oh yes so so such a proud parenting moment yes um but it's it's also true and it's a thing that, I think people like let's say who take cold showers will engineer specifically in that context and then forget to apply in other areas of their lives mm. like eating, you know? What does eating breakfast feel like? What does skipping breakfast feel like? It, what does hunger feel like? And let me explore some of these things about myself, all the little nooks and crannies. Um so anyway, you yeah. know, this isn't an argument for having breakfast, but uh sometimes we do develop some some unhealthy rules and relationships Mm
1: -hmm. with
0: meals and certain kinds of foods and things like that. And um, now we're not actually reacting to what breakfast feels like. We're reacting to this whole story and fear system that we've built up. Mm. Uh, So anyway, you know, I I love the idea of liberation in this context, you know, liberation from phobias and fears and superstitions. Mm -hmm. So... Who knows, I mean, maybe intermittent fasting really is the tool that is best suited for your life, but you can't possibly know that unless you try some other tools. you've been doing it for way too long yeah, you
1: know yeah no i I feel liberated honestly you have my <laughs> you have my uh mind spinning right now, and I'm excited to try and start implementing some other things because I think I have personally gotten gotten. Um, almost like subconsciously dogmatic about it and superstitious about it, and it's yeah, yeah. It's so, so you're
0: not like you're not publicly annoying about it, yeah, exactly. But, but, but maybe what you're experiencing is worse. You're like you
1: internal, you're internally afraid <laughs> yeah. of, of things
0: that one maybe not ought to
1: be afraid of. You know? Yeah, man. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that, John. I want to be mindful of your time, man. I know we've gone a little bit over, but this has been yeah, that's wonderful. Okay. We could I, could, I have so many questions here we could get back to. Maybe someday we'll do a part two. But um, just to wrap it up, man, uh, some quick fire questions. If you could recommend a few books from any genre uh, for someone to read or check out, which ones come to mind for you? Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Things in nutrition and, and fitness,
0: exercise are the least interesting to me nowadays. Mm-hmm. If you're at the beginning of your career, of course you should be reading these things. This isn't me saying not reading them, but um, I've been around a long enough time, you know, to to know that, uh, you know, I, I've done the 80-20 of knowing about the, how the body works and stuff like that. So for me, uh, the things that are, are interesting are things fully outside this area. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love reading philosophy, history, psychology stuff. Mm-hmm. I also love reading fiction, um, and uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, I feel like if I read outside my field, I can find examples and analogies that I can bring back into the field. Mm. Uh, one of my closest friends his name is named Stu McMillan. He's uh, just a touch older than me, which I like to remind him of, <laughs> and uh, he is a world-class uh, track and field coach. So he's coached a lot of people that you've seen on the Olympics. Uh, he's a sprint coach, uh, trains a hundred meter, 200 meter, 400 meter runners, also bobsledders. Um, and you know, when people ask him what coaching books he reads, he says, I don't read any coaching books, but every book I read is a coaching book. Hmm. In other words, I look outside my field for ideas I can bring back into my field. And that is my favorite way of looking at it. But again, this is like the intermittent fasting of, uh, of reading, right? You have to have built a foundation of knowledge in your field first. Mm -hmm. Um, when it comes to that, you know, I I feel like getting some scientific literacy is, is pretty critical. So, um, and then reading research, you know, reading meta-analyses. Um, again, if you're interested in, let's say nutrition or exercise and what we know about those things. You know, popular books on these things generally start narrative-driven, which makes them more difficult to really parse what's true and what's not true. Mm -hmm. So I feel like if you're talking about reading for knowledge acquisition, then you need to go to the source of the knowledge, right? Now, I read a lot of fiction because it opens up creative pathways in my brain, that I feel like I can't access any other ways. So when I read fiction books, I feel like I am funnier, more creative, come mm-hmm. up with more creative solutions. My conversational skills are better, etc. So I actually some books I read to acquire knowledge. Uh, rarely are they, you know, sort of. If it's a scientific endeavor, books it's usually source literature. Pu- you go on PubMed, Medline, whatever. Um, some books I read because I think they do things to my brain that I want done. You know, mm-hmm. that's usually my fiction reading, and then I read a lot in philosophy and history because I think they provide loads of examples of things outside of my primary area of interest that I can bring back in. Mm-hmm. So if if we want to talk about some titles, for example, um, one of my favorite authors is called Will Durant. Uh, he wrote a lot of Award-winning books with his wife Ariel, and they are philosophers and historians. Um, the uh, The book I just finished is called uh, "The Story of Philosophy," which is an epic read. I mean, it's it's mm. this huge book, uh, but it walks through the history of Western philosophy um, and thought and ideas. Um, uh, he uh, so I highly recommend stuff by Will Durant if you're interested in going mm-hmm. going down this pathway. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, again, I, I think that the titles are less important mm-hmm. than what you're trying to do, yeah. you know? And, and, and again, you, uh, people can tell, like if, if people are into deeper thinking and introspection and thinking higher level, uh, then they'll probably like what I have to say about things. And if they're not, then they probably think I'm a total waste of their time. Um, <laughs> But in general it's just like you know uh, what should I eat to be healthy well a lot of a lot of it has more to do with why you eat and how you eat than what you eat okay what should I read okay s- yeah, same yeah, right yeah what what are you reading for right there there are different purposes to reading you know yeah. I, I think reading can expand your mind it can give you examples that you can apply in different contexts and it can give you information right mm-hmm. uh i recommend all three yeah you know yeah and 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 i and i think uh mining the best authors in different disciplines and genres can help with that yeah you know so no so it's not it's not super prescriptive but uh, i think you know if folks are going to read books because it does consume a portion of your life mm-hmm you should think about why and what you're going to get out of it and choose wisely.
1: Yeah, agreed. I've become a huge fan of of reading fiction before bed recently mm-hmm. and non-fiction in the morning, but i love the fiction before bed. So give me one fiction title that you've read recently that you really enjoyed.
0: Mhm. So, uh there's a there's a series
1: called uh first book is called The Name of the Wind, Patrick Rothfuss. Yes. Um Have you read this? I haven't, but my wife just started recently, and I'm going to be jumping on that train right after I finish my current book.
0: Yeah, I just, uh, I mean, there's uh, a lot of drama in it because we're all waiting for the final installment, which is, you know, taking a very long time, (laughs) which is fine for me, you know, I may be dead before it comes out and someone not Patrick Rothfuss may have to write it. But, uh, nevertheless, I mean, it's, it's one of the most interesting, beautiful sort of world building pieces that I've read and it always comes to mind. And, and, uh, I've, I've read, I, I, I keep anticipating that the final book will come out. So then I will reread the, the previous <laughs> books and I'm like, all right, I think five years later, you know, eight years later, whatever. <laughs> I'm going to read, I, I think it might be coming. So I'm going to read them again, just so I'm fresh. Uh, so for folks who want to delve into really compelling, interesting uh, fiction that has fantasy elements and things like that, the that series is a great place to start. Yeah. Yeah, for
1: sure. Last question for you, man. What does a life enchanted mean to you? Yeah. Um I don't know. I mean, that,
0: that isn't a word I typically would use, Mm -hmm. uh, in my life. I, I tend to be more of like a, well, I'll just say, I tend to be kind of a, a linear thinker Mm -hmm. that, um, that a a word like enchanted would not have a lot of context in my particular life, you know? Mm Um, but so for me, I, You know, like I, I think about the name of your podcast, and I try, and interpret maybe what it means to you. I'd be curious. What,
1: what does it mean to you? Wow, that's a great question. I think it's there's a lot that goes into it, but I think it's living in a way, doing what's necessary to be present and full of love. If I really had to boil it down to one sentence, is just be present and full of love. That's and great. and what goes into that is a lot of what we've talked about to be present, to be healthy, to, you know, you have to be eating right and exercising and, you know, a lot of things have to be firing on all cylinders. It, it's hard to be mm-hmm. present if you're aching and miserable and sick and stressed and fear-based and all these things. So, yeah, it would become, it would come down to me as being present and full of love.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard, uh, I, I don't know if you ever listened to Sam Harris's podcast, yeah. but, um, in a recent episode, someone asked him like, what are the, what what makes for a good life? And his response was, you know, uh, the two blanket things that probably everything else falls under, under, uh, this would be a good framework according to him was curiosity and love, you know? So Mm. the idea is if you strove to be curious and everything that entails, you know, and to give and receive love in the most best ways that you can, always nudging forward and everything that entails, not just to the yeah. people close to you, but people far from you, you know, um, strangers and people yes. in faraway countries, uh, then that may be the simplest explanation of what would make for a good life. You yes. know? And I, I thought that was a, that was a really good answer. Agreed. Um, also not very tangible or practical, right? You're mm-hmm. like, all right, help me unpack that a little bit <laughs> if I wanna do some stuff. But I'm always a believer that we have to start with an overarching philosophy, belief system, value system, and that's the thing that helps drive the practical things, right? Without a philosophy, then you're just pulling random tools into your life.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: With an overarching philosophy, then you can see say which tools fit into my life. Mm. You know, and that's that's the stuff I think a lot about around purpose, values, and unique abilities. You yeah. know, um, So maybe that's what an enchanted life for me would actually look like. Mm-hmm. It would be a life where you understand your purpose, um, know and have articulated clearly your values, having competed them against other values and been sure these are the ones. Mm. And then where you're using your unique abilities, which are the things that you you know can be world class at or are that you really enjoy doing, you know, like when you're doing that world-class thing, you love it and that you can see yourself always wanting to do better and and grow. You never see it running out of runway and it makes a difference when you do it. So, you know, although I tend to not use that kind of word, Mm -hmm. what feels like if I understand the word enchanted, it Mm -hmm. would be, man, if I understood my purpose and my values and I was living according to them, and I was doing stuff within my unique ability set. That would probably
1: be an enchanted life. Yeah. Beautiful, man. Couldn't agree more. And speaking of unique abilities and, and finding that pursuit and passion, we didn't even talk about your book, Changemaker, which is phenomenal. I mean, it's it's so complete. It's so well done, well thought out. Tons of free resources and practical, actionable tips and questions and it's just, it's one of the better books that I've ever come across in the, in the nonfiction world. I've I've read it twice now, and it's really helped me awesome. in my journey in the health and wellness industry, and and just in career and purpose. So, highly, highly, highly recommend people, even if you're not in the wellness industry or don't plan to be, checking it out just to get some some insight into your life. And I'll put links to all things John Berardi in the show notes. John, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much, man.
0: Thanks for having me, Nick. I really appreciate it. And to everyone who's listened for this almost an hour and a half, I appreciate your time, too.
2: A special thanks to King's Kaleidoscope for the music heard throughout this episode. Also, a big shout-out to Capital Floats, a.k.a. my favorite sensory deprivation and float tank facility in Northern California. I'm a frequent user there, and the experience is always transformative, to say the least. If you're interested in floating and live in Northern Cal, make sure you use promo code LIFEENCHANTED with no spaces at checkout on their website. You'll save a whopping 40% off your first float and you will not find that deal anywhere else. Also, in regards to some of the content shared in these episodes, make sure you always consult your doctor before making any sudden diet or lifestyle changes. If you're interested in connecting with me, you can find me on Instagram at nick.carlisle or send me an email nick at mylifeenchanted.com.